0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mescouta, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, just this past week, um, I got a message on Facebook. And so uh, I'll just be honest with you guys. Pastoring a church that has a large military contingent can oftentimes be a difficult thing. Right, uh, Every three years, if not sooner, people that we have drawn close to, that we have grown in relationship with, are sent off. And if you've been here uh, in the beginning of the year where we've done a state of the church before, you'll know that we, we see the men and women that come, whether in the Air Force or, or, or military or apart, and as they leave, we see that not as primarily just us losing people, but the Lord who ordains the steps of every man, woman, and child, sending out his missionaries into the world. And so you may see the graphics coming up in a few weeks when we do a state of the church and say, I didn't know we sent out 30 missionaries last year. I don't remember anybody going to the Congo or Nigeria or, you know, South America. But we have missionaries in Korea, South Korea. We also have them in, you know, South Dakota. Um, And so we send those out all over the place, and it's really hard sometimes, but it's also really beautiful when I get to hear and follow along and watch the Lord moving and working and using this family of believers to spread the gospel all over the place. Well, I got a message from one of those family members that has been sent halfway around the world by Uncle Sam as a missionary, and he reached out to me and he said, hey, listen, in in the church that I'm a part of, I'm going to be preaching in a couple weeks And I'm going to be preaching on the baptism of Jesus. And if you guys don't know, this is one of my absolute favorite passages of Scripture. Mark 1.11 is probably my favorite verse or one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. And he said, would you mind if I take some of the notes that you used? Because that sermon was transformative. Now, what he was referring to is the voice of the Father when Jesus comes out of the water and the heavens break open and the Father speaks upon Jesus This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And to give you the short crib notes, our union with Christ, the work of Christ on the cross, has made us one with him. We have been given his very position in righteousness, which means what the Father says of the Son, he says of us. The Father says to us, to you, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And he told me, he said, the reason I want to use these notes is, you know, I said, The Father says, you are His, you are loved, and He likes you. And He said that word, that the Father likes me, will forever change. And He used an interesting phrase. He said, it will forever change the way I see the face of the Lord toward me. And it just got me thinking as I was reflecting on this message, this idea of the face of the Lord towards us. You know, I've got five kids And with those five kids, I've learned to read people's faces. Sometimes their faces don't match with what they're saying, like when they say, yes, dad. But really what I know they're saying is, I can't wait till you turn your back, dad. Right? Or when I ask them, is something wrong? And they say, no, dad. And I can tell, no, that something is wrong. I've learned to to expect their faces in certain situations. I I know the face that they give me when they're being disciplined. I know the face that they will give me when they receive good gifts. I, I know the face that they will have when I'm being silly with them, or if I'm frustrated with them, or when I hurt their feelings. You know, we all know the faces of other people. So much of our communication is held not in our words, but in the way our mouth and our eyes and our cheeks, our face communicates. You probably know the face of a loved one when you are kind towards them, when they receive love or affection from you. Maybe you know the face of a loved one when you have succeeded. You also probably know the face of a loved one when you have failed them. The face of a loved one in the midst of what you feel like is disappointment towards you, frustration towards you, anger towards you. Well, as we finished up the last sermon series on the unbelievable love of God, and as we are transitioning into this new year and this new season, my heart was heavy thinking about how many of us are entering into the new year hoping to be better than last year, but I can give you statistics about the 200 million plus Americans that will make resolutions in this first month. I can give you statistics about the 75% of those resolutions that will fail within the first week and the 90% of those resolutions that will fail within the first month, but the truth of the matter is for most of us, we will have finished last year not meeting the expectation or the dreams that we had. And if 2020 and 2021 tells me anything, it's probably those statistics are higher over the last two years than they've ever been. Most of us have not had the dream year. Most of us have not lost the weight that we wanted to lose. We've not picked up the new disciplines that we wanted to pick up. I haven't become the father or the husband that I had duly planned to be over the last year. And because of that, we make resolutions I'll be better, I'll get better, I'll work harder. I'll be more organized, more disciplined, more patient, more loving, more kind, more fill in the blank. But I want to ask you this question. When we fail, when we don't quite measure up, do you know the face of the Lord towards you in those moments? Do you know how his eyes look? Do you know his disposition towards you? Do you know whether or not he, he, he places an arm and a hand to keep you away, or whether or not in the midst of that He draws you in? And that's what I want to spend this morning, a brief time because we're together as a family with our kids. That's what I want to look at this morning, is the disposition, the face of our Lord when we fail, because... Our expectation of the Lord when we fail will determine how we respond when we fail. It will determine whether we run towards the Lord or whether we run away from the Lord. It will determine whether we draw into the Lord for grace and mercy or whether we shrink back from the Lord in hiding. It determines whether our failure will actually lead us to greater hope or whether it will lead us in despair. And so as I mentioned, we're going to be in John chapter 21. The sermon doesn't have three points. It's just got one big one. And that big one is that our Savior and our God is really, really kind. John 21 begins like this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Now, if ever there were two words that seemed so simple, but were packed with so much meaning, it would be the words here in John 21, after this. This is the final chapter of the Gospel of John, and after this means... After the resurrection, after the crucifixion, after the denial of Peter, after the fleeing of the other disciples, after Judas's betrayal, after all of the miracles of Jesus and His public ministry, after the miraculous birth in the incarnation of Jesus, after the Immaculate conception of Mary, after the promises to. The prophets in the Old Testament, after the failures of the people of God, when the Lord's love still remained, after the sin of Adam and Eve, after creation in perfection. After all that, we find ourselves in John chapter 21. And if you don't believe me, if you feel like I'm stretching this too far, at the very least, it means after all of the gospel of John, and the gospel of John begins... In the beginning. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples. Now, if you're like me, and if you've kind of read through the gospel stories, the work of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, you might see that word reveal and simply think, Jesus shows himself to the disciples again. He shows back up now in resurrected body But that word revealed means more than that. The the closest translation, and we just don't use it because it's not a word that we used, would be made manifest. Right? Jesus literally makes himself clear to the disciples for the first time. And what that means, what it communicates to us, is that the disciples don't understand. Here they are at the very end of the Gospel of John. Here they are after the crucifixion and the resurrection. And John is communicating to us that in all that, through all the miracles that they've walked with Jesus, the years that they have lived with Him, slept near Him, were taught by Him, they still haven't quite understood exactly who Jesus is. And can, can I just tell you something? As, as a pastor, and more as a pastor, just as a Christ follower, this is true for you and I. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in one of my favorite quotes... Says that all of our responses when we finally reach eternity, heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, and we finally come face to face with the Lord, that we will all say the same thing, and it's this Of course. Of course, He's that good, and I never got it. Of course, God, you are that great, but I never saw it. Of course, you're this beautiful. Of course, you're this faithful. Of course, all of the things that you promised are true. And we will say, of course, because on this side of eternity, we walk seeing in a mirror lit dimly. We see through a veil. We see in part, not yet in whole. And it's kind of our Lord to continue to reveal himself to us so that day after day, Moment after moment, we get to know him better. That's why we gather together as the church. It's why we live life together in community. Because I don't know Jesus. Not perfectly and not wholly. And oftentimes, my life seems like I don't know him very much at all. And either do you. And so, we live life together and gather together underneath of the truth of his word, asking him, Jesus, Will you be made manifest? Will you make yourself clear to us again today? Jesus revealed himself to his disciples in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two other of his disciples were together. Now Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. Now again, this seems kind of like a little bit of just background detail, an innocuous kind of innocent part of the story, but something significant is going on here. Now we know that Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John were fishermen before Jesus called them. But we also know that when Jesus called them to come and follow me, he promised them that they would no longer be fishermen, but fishers of men. That fish would no longer be what their life was meant to be spent catching. But instead, with the gospel, they were meant to catch men and women and to bring them into the kingdom of God. So what is Peter doing here, going back to his old vocation? Well, that goes back to that after this. See, before Jesus' resurrection and before his crucifixion, after Jesus... Was arrested, we are told in multiple of the Gospels that Peter denies Jesus. As a matter of fact, in one of the accounts, we're told that Peter denies Jesus three times, and on the third time, so uh, kind of vociferously, so passionately, does he deny Jesus that Jesus, who is in an upper courtyard being tried by the religious rulers, hears his denial, turns and looks at Peter. And Peter, as he is denying that he even knows his Savior, connects eyes with Jesus and we're told that he begins to weep and he leaves. Now up to this point, we know that Jesus has revealed himself to his disciples, but we're not told that he's had any conversation with Peter. We've not been told that he has resolved that situation or that Peter in any way, shape, or form still believes that he is a disciple of Jesus, let alone the disciple that Jesus declared he would build his church upon. And so Peter, probably in despair, probably believing that even if the the other disciples will be sent out by Jesus to continue their mission, that he's done. And so he does, in failure, what we oftentimes do. He reverts back to what feels safe, what feels known, probably what he feels confident in. He goes back to something he feels like he can succeed in. But our Lord is gracious to him in a way that we might not expect, because John tells us they went out, they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. The Lord doesn't allow Peter to leave what he has called him into, even though he has failed at it as a disciple, and to go back to something else that he can find value in, identity in, security in, or worth in. Peter has spent his life fishing, and yet he's not even capable, strong enough, or sufficient enough in this moment to catch anything story goes on, it says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples, whether from a distance or because of his new resurrection body, did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in. Because of the quantity of fish. Now again, if you've read through the gospel accounts before, this should sound familiar. We've seen this before. When Peter and James and John and Andrew are called, a very similar situation occurs. We're told that Peter has been out fishing all night and he's caught nothing. And a teacher comes to the shore And he tells him, cast your net on the right side of the boat. And he does, and the net is overflowed with fish. The same thing occurs here. It's almost as if the risen Christ is saying to his disciples, we can redeem all that's been lost. We can go back again to the beginning Any faults or failures that you've had before, I have the authority and the power to do this all over again, to reconcile what has been lost. Now, we're told that that disciple whom Jesus loved, I love that, that's John referring to himself. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Literally, threw himself into the sea. It means that he it, it, it's a combination word that means he he rushed. He, he launched himself into the sea without knowing where he would land or how he would land or how it would feel or anything else. It was a reaction. John said, it's the Lord, it's Jesus, and Peter's reaction is, I've got to get to him as fast as I possibly can. We're told, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards. Now, I don't know about Peter's swimming prowess, okay? Okay. I do know that putting on a robe before jumping into the water and swimming a hundred yards doesn't sound like something I would be very particularly good at. And with other men in a boat, even dragging a heavy net, multiple men able to row, I can't imagine that Peter got there but perhaps a few seconds before the disciples, the rest of them. But you can almost imagine Peter, if you asked him, Peter, was it worth it? Couldn't you have just stayed in the boat? You can almost imagine Peter turning to you and saying, if I could get to the feet of Jesus even one moment sooner, it's worth it. Now coming off of Peter's failure, it may seem like he would be the last disciple that we would want to take tips and notes from. But this is perhaps the best testimony that Peter ever gives. Remember the last time that Peter has locked eyes, really locked eyes with Jesus. It's been in the most humiliating, shameful, guilty moment of his life. As he denied even knowing God in human flesh who was about to climb upon the cross, suffer death and the wrath of God towards him for his salvation. And yet, even if Peter had doubted and failed, he clearly knew Jesus enough to know that in that moment, what he needed was to get at the feet of Jesus. I wonder for you and I, if this is our heart, day after day. That if in our worst moments, in our failures, in our sin, if our heartbeat is that we must as quickly as possible get to the feet of Jesus. Because that's what we were created for. It's why the Lord laments in the garden when after Adam and Eve sin, they hide. And we're told that the Lord comes for them. He says to them, where are you? Not because He doesn't know, but because He knows where they are. He says, where are you? In order to draw attention that they ought to be right in front of Him. And then in one of the most heartbreaking responses ever, characterizing quite honestly the heart and our nature in light of sin, Adam responds, we heard you coming and we were afraid. We heard you coming and we were afraid. But Peter, now on this side of the resurrection, on this side of the gospel, On this side of the sacrifice of Jesus, in the midst of his sin and failure, in the midst of his shame and guilt, sees the Lord coming, and he throws himself into the sea in order to get near him. The story continues in verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. With fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Now, I want to just kind of take a moment for an aside here and tell you why, when we read stories, we one, pay attention to language, and two, we allow ourselves to sit in it. But I also want to tell you why we read the entire story. Because if you have read the entire story, things like charcoal fire would would start to make an impact. Because when Peter denied Jesus, there's a strange detail that's included in that story. And it's in that story that we're told that Peter is warming himself, not by a fire, but by a charcoal fire when he denies Christ three times. That's not a magic trick. I'm not inviting you to simply look for clues to know more things, but to know that the Lord is interested in the details. That he is in the details. And that he doesn't just love us up here, theoretically. He doesn't just redeem our lives, kind of on this big, broad, sweeping thing, but it doesn't trickle its way down in the details and the muck and the mire of our life. But as you're about to see, Jesus is setting up a scenario so that in every way, shape, and form, he can say to Peter, my grace is bigger than your sin. And my redemption completely covers your failure. And so Jesus invites Peter to come to this charcoal fire. He says, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now again, if you've read through the Gospels at all, if I asked you one characteristic about the disciples, perhaps one of your first answers would be, they seem to always be Hungry. As a matter of fact, we're told in one point in time that after Jesus has fed a multitude and they cross with the disciples to the other shore, he's trying to teach them about the significance of this multitude. And he essentially looks at them and says, What, what, what are you guys talking about? What, what's going on right now? Why aren't you paying attention? And their response, Michael's paraphrase, is are we going to have breakfast? Did we bring anything for breakfast? And Jesus says, do you not understand about the bread and the fish? Did you not just see me multiply for thousands of people? And their response is, so we are going to have breakfast? like They're constantly asking about food. And, And here's why I love this. I love this because Again, remember who Jesus is in this moment. Remember after this. Jesus has just defeated sin and death. Jesus has just absorbed the wrath of God for humanity for all time. Jesus has just hung on the cross and has endured. The Father turning His face away. He suffered death. and He's resurrected. And now, the resurrected King of the universe is cooking breakfast for disciples that denied Him and fleed from His very presence. What kind of God do we have that loves us this way? What kind of God do we have that days after defeating sin and death cares about what we eat? I remember several years ago, it's a moment that I will never forget. Uh, Rachel and I had been going through uh, the adoption process. We were in the process of adopting a a six-year-old little girl from Ghana in West Africa. We already had two kiddos, and uh, we went through this process, and Rachel and I had both gotten to fly over to Ghana and spend uh, weeks at a time with her, holding her, laughing with her, um, celebrating with her, and dreaming about the day that she came home and it's a long story uh come uh, buy me a cup of coffee and i'll tell you about it i just really like coffee um but long story short she never came home um and we pled with the lord for months to bring her home and he didn't and at that same time i was being commissioned as an elder at our church I was the only other elder besides our lead pastor, and so one of the job descriptions of being an elder is, you know, you show up to a house or a dinner party, you're the guy that's going to pray. Somebody's got an issue, you're the guy that's going to pray, and it, and it ought to be that way. And here was the only problem: I didn't feel like I could pray for anything in that moment, in those moments. I felt like I had asked the Lord specifically for one thing over and over and over again. And for whatever reason, and I didn't understand it at that moment, he said no. And it became so hard to pray. And then one morning, I was getting ready for work. And I knew that my wife had found herself in that same place. But I came down and Rachel was downstairs and the TV was on. And she was with our oldest child, Noah, who I think was maybe... 445. And a news story had come on that there had been a carjacking. Um, a woman had gotten out of her car. She had uh, left it running and had gone into her apartment building came back out and the car was gone. The problem was that she had left her child in the back seat of that car. And they didn't know where the baby was. And so as I was getting ready to leave I heard my wife through wobbly knees, say to my four-year-old son, let's pray and let's ask God to just allow that baby to be okay. And I remember not stopping because I was angry with the Lord, but just walking down the stairs and out the door and into my car. And five minutes later, I got a call from my wife and she said, hey, I, this is the craziest thing. But it couldn't have been 30 seconds after we got done praying that a news bulletin came in and said that the baby had been found, was safe, and was being returned to his mother. Just in that moment, there was this overwhelming sense that the Lord gave me where he just said to you, and I'm not uh, the most mystical of guys, but I could feel the Lord saying to me, Hey, I see you. I know how you need to be loved. I know in the midst of failure and suffering and hurt that it feels like I'm not there, but I am. I can't imagine how Peter felt in this moment to run to the presence of Jesus, not possibly knowing if there's going to be harsh words or difficult times, but knowing he needs to be before him and Jesus' immediate response be to him, come, sit, come have breakfast story continues. It says, an odd phrase, now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Now we don't quite know all of the details, but we know that oftentimes when Jesus, as a resurrected man, appeared to his disciples, that oftentimes they didn't quite see him. They didn't quite get it. They didn't quite know at first that it was Jesus. But what I love here that John is saying when it says, Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Is it comes directly on the heels of Jesus cooking them breakfast. It's as if the tenderness and the kindness of Jesus is what told them, This is Jesus. They may have had doubts before that. They may not have been able to see Jesus clearly with their eyes, but when they received his grace and his mercy in that moment, without a doubt, they knew this is my Savior. If you feel like sometimes you don't quite know Jesus, if you feel like you can't see him in all instances of Your life, if you feel like you paint him wrongly, then the invitation is the same to us as it was to these disciples, which is draw near. As Psalm 34 says, taste and see and know that our God is good. Because it's in his grace and his mercy that you and I will come to be able to say, This is my Savior, this is he who is good. Jesus came, and he took the bread, and he gave it to them, and so with the fish. Now this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The story goes on. Now when Peter had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? After breakfast finishes, Peter and Jesus, perhaps they go for a walk along the seashore. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says these words that probably cut Peter to the core. He said, Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? He says to them, to to Peter, do you love me most? Am I the greatest thing in your life? Do you truly love me? And Simon responds to him and he says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. I love Peter's response because whether or not he knew it, he was speaking incredibly profound truth back to Jesus. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? Or or perhaps in effect, he said to Peter, do you know that you love me? And Peter responds to Jesus, you know that I love you. See, this is is the, the most important thing. The most important thing, honestly, church, hear this, is not how much you know of the Lord, the most important thing is that the Lord knows you. There was a a, a theologian that was uh, being interviewed, him and his wife, and they were getting pretty advanced in age, and his wife was beginning to suffer from uh, Alzheimer's. And uh, during the interview, she was getting a little tired, and so she went to take a nap, and the theologian said to the interviewer, this is just kind of our life now. Uh, Days are, are difficult, and she gets tired pretty easily, and the interviewer asked um, the man, he said, how is she doing with beginning to lose her memory? And he said, you know, um, she's doing well except for one thing. She's told me many times that she is incredibly afraid that she'll forget Jesus. And he said, all I can ever tell her is what's most important it's not that you remember jesus but that he remembers you that even when your memory gets fuzzy even when you and i out of fear doubt guilt sin brokenness suffering or anything else get our vision of the lord twisted what is most important is that he remains the same who he actually is does not change And he knows what Christ has done for us. And he knows that we are his. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. At the the end of the summer last year, we did a sermon series on our mission as the church. We read through Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. And we said that our job is to be disciples who make disciples. But if if you really want to know the order of that, we then broke that down by what we say is that process of being disciples that make disciples. We use this language, know Christ, believe the gospel, love people. And it's not just three things that we do. It is an order. That in order to love people, to go, to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, we first have to know Christ. And Jesus says that here to Peter. Before he tells him, feed my lambs, which he's saying, care for my flock. Keep going on the mission that I've given you. He asks him the question, do you love me? Because love always precedes mission. Love always precedes mission. Discipline. Don't try and go and do for Jesus before you have sat and learned to love Jesus. Don't try and be a better husband. First, be a better follower of Jesus. Don't try and be a better employee. First, sit and learn to love and know your Savior. Love proceeds and then leads to our mission story goes on. Jesus says to Simon a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Do you hear the echoes again? Jesus doesn't ask Peter, do you love me one time? He doesn't ask him two times. He asks him three times. Same amount of times that Peter denied Jesus in that courtyard. Again, Jesus is telling Peter and telling us, I do not offer partial redemption. My healing is not just on the surface. It is not only in part, but in whole. All three of your rejections and denials of me are covered now here as you are face to face with me. Can I ask you this question? Do you know what this type of redemption feels like? Do you see in your own life that the care and redemption of Jesus is complete? Or do you feel like he just covers a little bit? Like he just washes some of it clean? Like he heals only part of the story? Or do you believe, as it says in the end of the Lord of the Rings, that in Christ everything sad comes untrue. Because it does. Jesus says a third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him again, feed my sheep. The story concludes this way. Jesus continues and he says truly, truly to Peter, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. There's a couple things we need to kind of lay out. Jesus begins to speak in a bit of a parable, and he says, You used to dress yourself when you were young and you would walk wherever you wanted. You chose where you went. But when you are old, later in life, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, church tradition says that Peter was killed, martyred for his faith in the same fashion as Christ by crucifixion and on a cross. Church history also says that Peter demanded that he be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to be martyred in the same way that his Savior was killed. Now it feels like Jesus is maybe saying to Peter, Hey, I get it. You deny me. You love me. We're good in that fashion, but things aren't going to go well for you. But this isn't a punishment. Actually, it's just the opposite. On the night that Peter betrays Jesus, while they are gathered in the upper room, Jesus tells Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you. And you will deny me. You know what Peter says to Jesus? I will follow you to the ends of the earth. I will give my life for you, Jesus. Even to death will I follow you. And while there may have been some arrogance in that, I also believe it was his heart's desire. That he wanted to follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. He wanted to give his entire life to Jesus. His entire life to seeing the kingdom of God come. And Jesus in this moment is telling Peter, you haven't failed your way out of this. You desire to follow me to the ends of the earth, and you will. You desire to give your entire life to this mission of grace and salvation, and you will. I'm not going to let you fail your way out of this. I will see you to the very end and on home to glory. You know, as I've gotten older one of the things that i have started to battle with is year after year it feels like you know like when you're young it feels like you're you're like climbing you're always like can't wait until i get to can't wait until i get to one day i'll be 18 one day i'll be 21 one day you know whatever i just feel like i'm on a real fast roller coaster on the other end and as you are on that roller coaster descending on the other side you look back and think, I'll never see that again. Or, well, that, that's, that's going to make a permanent impact. Or like, I'm at that point now when I think of New Year's resolutions and trying to get in shape and stuff like that, is I, I think this to myself all the time. Is it too late? Have I gone too far? Am I too old? And what I used to be will never be again. Some of you are laughing because you can identify some of you are looking at me confused because you're too young. And some of you are looking at me with disdain because you've already walked through that and you're thinking, Michael, you have no clue what you're talking about. Okay? Regardless, here's, here's what I want you to hear. It's easy in our life to believe that what has occurred cannot be undone. The decisions that we make are permanent And will have rippling effects. And likely they will have effects. But the question belongs to you and I. Do we believe that the Lord is powerful enough to take even those things that we believe are permanent? Our scars. Our our brokenness. That we have entered into or committed. And that he can actually heal them. It's hard to believe that. It's hard to believe after we say words that somehow the redemption of Christ can use those for good, can redeem, can heal. It's hard to believe that when we sin against one another, that somehow the Lord can mend that rift. But the question remains to us, not just is he good enough, but is he also powerful enough? And that's the beauty of this passage. This is meek, mild, tender, intimate, gracious, merciful, slow to anger Jesus. And it's also the King that has banished sin and death. That is coming again one day where every knee will bow and tongue will confess that he is Lord. He is coming again where he will make all things new, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Where death will be no more, where sickness, sin and brokenness will no longer have a place. Because that's the Jesus we run back to in our failure. That's the Jesus that we go back to in our sin. Church, let me just say this. Here's my hope for you and I today in this new year and every year. I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail my Lord. I don't want to fail my wife. I don't want to fail my family. I don't want to fail this church. And I don't want you to fail. But let me tell you something, as much as I don't want you and I to fail, far more do I want you and I to know Jesus intimately, To know his grace and mercy the way that Peter did. So here was a man who knew the face of the Lord. You could look him in the eyes and say, do you know what the face of the Lord looks like when you fail? And he could say, Yes. And it's the same face that he always gives to us. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So I pray that today that we would be able to rest upon the finished work of Jesus. And that his face towards us would change how we live every moment of every day. In the highest of our heights and in the lowest of our depths that in Christ, we can even fail our way into hope because he is the giver of hope. Pray with me.